This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. We talked about New York City uh, receiving its first delivery of the one-shot J&J vaccine, but you are seeing, Tim, vaccine manufacturers facing a global shortage of raw materials. That actually came from the head of the world's biggest vaccine maker uh, and also the World Health Organization. So, you know, here we are a year in. Vaccines are rolling out, but now we're trying to find the vaccinators and the places to do it. Yeah, as we've learned over the past few months, it is very complicated to roll out a vaccine globally, not to mention just develop it in such a short period of time. Gigi Granval is senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, joins us right now on the phone from Baltimore. Gigi, thanks for for joining us. Um, What are you watching right now? What is the most important thing when it comes to the pandemic recovery to keep an eye on? The vaccination rates, for sure. Um, Right now we have uh, in the U.S., we have three uh, vaccines with emergency use authorization. Um, Hopefully we'll have more Globally, there's a few others. Um, it's it's really just about trying to get as many people vaccinated so that um, we can um, that plus masks and social distancing spread the stop the spread of this virus. We're doing a pretty good job, though, right? I mean, the Bloomberg Vaccine Tracker, as of yesterday, we hit just over two million vaccine doses given per day, according to the seven day rolling average. That's that's a pretty pretty good rollout, right? Oh, it's really so encouraging to see. Um, and, and we definitely, it couldn't uh, happen at a better time because, you know, we have, uh, as you know, these variants that are, um, that are emerging, that we're keeping, that we're tracking more diligently now. Um, and some of them are more transmissible. So we really do need to get people vaccinated as well as stick with the other stuff um, to be able to stop the spread of this virus. So Gigi, this is what I want to know. You guys, you scientists, you understand kind of viruses, what they can do, how they can mutate, the variants that can come out there. And then you've got, on the other side, the vaccine that's fighting it. So what is kind of the mix between how quickly we have to get X percentage of our population vaccinated to stay ahead of the variants? And I know it's never like black and white here and very clear, but tell me kind of what you are keeping an eye on here. Well, there's a lot of people who, um, you know, all of these things are models because there's so many variables to be able to project how many people need to be vaccinated to be able to keep um, variants at bay, et cetera. And we have a whole population of children that are not even right now being planned to get vaccinated. Um, And so, you know, it's going to take a while before we get anything towards what we've been, you know, talking about herd immunity or anything like that. Um, but so I, I just um, would like to see the demand um, and supply match up a little better for a vaccine. And, um, and so that, you know, people, uh, pharmacies are more aggressively advertising it and trying to get those people who are hesitant to sign up and, and to, to show that these vaccines are, have a good safety record and that they have really um, amazing efficacy to be able, especially to prevent hospitalizations and deaths. Based on the current rate, on the modeling that you're seeing, when is that equilibrium going to to be reached? When is demand not going to exceed supply? 
Um, I, gosh, I mean, so the president um, said that every adult should be able to be vaccinated in the U.S. by May. Um, that would be fantastic. I'm also waiting. Um, but uh, then we, we're going to have kids um, and there are trials that are starting up. I'm hoping that that will be before the end of the year, that kids can start being vaccinated, um, hopefully much sooner than that. Um, and then, of course, do kids have to be vaccinated? Forgive me for saying that, but I'm just curious. Do we have to have kids vaccinated in order to get herd immunity? And it is the, is that got to be part of the press process? Um, I, I don't. I think that that disease could be uh, stopped in other ways. I mean, we know that we can stop um, spread of disease with you know good ventilation, masks, etc. Um, and and these things will change over time. But um, but I think it's just pure public health and uh, et cetera, it would be great to have kids be vaccinated so that if there are any long-term effects of the disease that we're limiting that to, um, in children. How do you do clinical trial when it comes to a vaccine on a, on a child? I mean, these are people who are under 18 and have to get consent from their parents, obviously, but how, how does that work? I mean, that sounds very complicated and sticky. Well, um, uh, kids participate in clinical trials all the time. Um, and, uh, and so, yes, it does involve consent from their parents and um, there are, I mean, not just this, uh, these vaccines, but all kinds of medical treatments um, where the, the balance, uh, sometimes kids, uh, you know, especially older kids, really enjoy participating in it and, uh, and giving back and participating in the science. So it's something everyone can do. Um, I have my, my, one of my kids is in a, in a brain study to study the teen, uh, the teen brain hmm. for, for 10 years. And so it's kind of fun and interesting. So Gigi, testing. How important is it that we continue to do testing for the virus? Yeah, yeah it's really important. And, and strangely, for a lot of different reasons, people are still trying to figure out testing has been down recently. So um, we need testing to be able to figure out, you know, not only how many people are positive and how, how many cases we have, but also um, an increasing number of those positive cases are getting sequenced so that we can keep a track on the variant. So and see which you know new ones are emerging and which uh, ones are, are more present than, than we'd like them to be. So um, testing is really important, but for whatever reason, whether it's bad weather or people are sick of this or resources are devoted to vaccines versus testing, it, it has been down recently. I, I, I wonder if that's also because people are seeing numbers go down and maybe it's down also because, you know, we aren't really around any major holidays like we were a few weeks ago. Um, Gigi, I, I do wonder uh, when it comes to this, just what things look like on the other side. I, I ran into a friend of mine in the lobby of our building yesterday. She lives really close to us. She's a neighbor. It's been a year since we've gotten to hang out with, with her and her family. And I was saying, hey, we're so close, like, you know, just a few months. And she looked at me, gave me this look, and she's like, no, this is going to be with us forever. Um, where do you fall? Well, I think uh, some things will be will be different forever, and, and it'll probably take us some time to realize just how much things changed and what, um, what's going to stick around. Um, but, I mean, post-vaccine and when cases are low, I think things are going to be a lot better for, for most people with um, – I, I think, you know, the, the recommendations for people who are vaccinated to continue to wear masks, it's because community transmission is still so high. So the vaccine doesn't protect you from getting infected. It, it protects you from succumbing to that illness. And, um, and so we're still trying to figure out what that means for everyone. But it should really help to reduce spread and 
as when spread goes down, then we all benefit. And I think we'll be able to hang out a lot more. But Gigi, to Tim's point and Tim's friend's point, you know, there's a story on the Bloomberg about, you know, where we are in hunting for the coronavirus's origin. We still don't really exactly know where this came from or how it came about. At the same time, we have talked to a lot of folks too, the virus, you know, hunters that are out there that said there's another 200 or I don't know how many that are out there that can be just as problematic. I mean, do we need to then ultimately going forward live in a world where we're constantly on kind of pins and needles and worried about, oh, wait a minute, where did you come from? Wait, maybe you brought something into this country. Well, I hope that we are doing, we'll do a lot better job of figuring out and responding to, to pathogens as they emerge a lot faster. I mean, the vaccine, it's, it's amazing. We have, I mean, vaccine, multiple vaccines in a year. I don't want to say that that isn't amazing. That, that's totally amazing. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the science of making sure that we, you know, figure out what things are likely to emerge um, maybe have a more broad uh, corona, uh, coronavirus vaccine that can protect against multiple types of strains that we think are going to to emerge. All these things require um, a lot more dedication of resources and thinking about all of these health security issues as really a national security priority. I mean, this is this was devastating to the U.S. and um, and we could have been better prepared. Gigi, we only have like 15 seconds left, but because mRNA vaccines uh, are, are being used now and we were able to develop them so quickly, does this mean in the future we can respond very, very quickly? I hope so. I hope so. It's so exciting that those vaccines um, were so quick to develop and that they work so well. I think it's going to be a new age for, for that yeah. kind of technology and vaccines in general. Yeah, right. The collaboration, too, and, and the way they were able to move so quickly. Gigi, thank you so much. Um, Gigi Gronval, Senior Scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, on the phone from Baltimore. And just a reminder, of course, uh, the school supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, the cover story in the magazine this week, we mentioned it earlier. It's about Pfizer Pfizer, uh, and really kind of their vaccine capitalism and going inside Pfizer's, I love this headline, fast fraught and lucrative vaccine distribution. And I really feel like they're being given accolades, but they're also getting a bunch of heat, as we said earlier. Yeah, they are. Look, there is no playbook to how a company responds to a pandemic. And that's that's pretty much that's that's what one of the things that the piece goes into. Joining us right now on the access line is Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week and Stephanie Baker, one of the reporters on this piece, financial investigations, senior writer at Bloomberg News. Uh, Joel, why was was this the, the perfect story for the cover this week? Well, I think the Pfizer um, shot and vaccine is one of the biggest success stories uh, ever, (laughs) frankly. I mean, like (laughs) to go from um, a pandemic to a vaccine in a year is uh, is a wonder. And we've we've written about that. But what we hadn't ever explored um, and what Stephanie and and her co-author Cynthia uh, dove into in this story is is sort of the behind the scenes um, logistics and distribution challenges. And and also keep in mind here, like the Pfizer is a publicly traded company that did not take money from the government. And because of that, they didn't have any strings on, on how they went about even pricing that. And that I thought was a really interesting angle. 
uh, and one that you know it, it speaks to also just the legacy of what we know about the pharmaceutical industry, mm -hmm. uh, which pricing has always been um, a, an issue with. And it was actually the issue that um, Albert Borla, who's the CEO of Pfizer, was expecting to deal with when he took over the job at Pfizer a year before the pandemic happened. So, so uh, Stephanie, I, I, I just want to turn it over to you because I, I thought so much of the reporting in this was was spot on and really interesting. And, and tell us, how does Pfizer going up, go about deciding who gets the vaccine? Well, you know, it, it's a pretty opaque process still, despite all our digging. I think it is a, a mix of your place in the queue, when did you get your order in, your order size, production forecast, calls from world leaders. Um, you know, our, we went into detail about how Israel managed to get its hands on so many doses. And as you know, Israel is uh, a world leader in terms of vaccination rates. And that is thanks to Pfizer, because they are almost exclusively using Pfizer for their vaccination campaign. And uh, Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, spoke to uh, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla more than 20 times. Um, uh, and, you know, one of the reasons why Israel got priority access was, well, A, it paid more, paid about $30 a dose, about 50% more than the U.S. did. And B, it um, offered to use Israel as a real world case study for how effective the vaccine is. And that has um, generated a stream of positive headlines about how effective the Pfizer vaccine is, um, you know. Israel was vaccinating 16 to 18-year-olds at a time when Europe was still waiting to vaccinate 80-year-olds. And that's kind of what we went into is how did that happen? Um, why was Europe uh, so behind uh, in terms of Pfizer's distribution? And, and why did Israel pull ahead? And really, it came down to these uh, few things. Uh, the EU, the European Union, of course, was late to place their order. That was one factor. But... Um, you know, Israel obviously offered a very unique opportunity for the company to showcase how great their vaccine is. Yeah, exactly. There's a line in your story, um, the story that you and, and your colleagues did, Stephanie, where you talk about Pfizer not bound to serve a global health agenda. Um, but having said that, that there will come a day where the, there will be an autopsy of the pandemic and that one of the main questions will be how a single company came to hold such power over so many because Pfizer is in that position. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Pfizer really stands out because it's the biggest player taking a commercial approach to COVID vaccines. Obviously, there are other players on the market. There's Moderna. They don't really have the capacity to produce at the level that Pfizer does. Um, there's AstraZeneca, which does have a huge production capability, but they've promised to sell their vaccine at, on a not-for-profit basis for just a few dollars a dose during the pandemic. Um, so Pfizer's really cut a, a very commercial approach to this. And, you know, when I was looking at vaccine access, who was getting shots, who was behind, you know, I, I realized that Pfizer didn't really, didn't finalize their deal with COVAX, this WHO-backed facility to distribute vaccines to low-income countries until January. Mm. And it was only for about 40 million doses. That was 2% of Pfizer's projected output this year. And just to put that into context, Astra did a deal for 170 million doses. Johnson & Johnson has a preliminary deal with COVAX uh, for 500 million. 
So that really kind of puts it into perspective that they're pushing this out on a commercial basis, doing these bilateral deals with countries. More than 60 countries have signed up. And we still don't know a lot. You know, there's a a lot that we set out to try to find out that we didn't didn't get to the bottom of. And we're going to continue to report it out to try to find out exactly how this system works. So just on the idea of um, uh, vaccine capitalism, Stephanie, how, how does Pfizer's efforts and, and money, money making abilities and all that compare with with other uh, with the other vaccine efforts that are out there? Now? And Steph, we only have about 30 seconds here, unfortunately. Well, you know, it it is um, it is looking at a commercial approach. It is looking at a post-pandemic approach as well, where it's updating its uh, vaccine so it can ta- tackle these new mutant variants. And I think it's looking at a, at, at a way to up the price when in, um, we're in a post-pandemic world. Um, you know, it will still probably be, you know, charging kind of more commercial rates than, than AstraZeneca and, and Johnson & Johnson. So I think that's how it stands out. All right, we're going to leave it there. Listen, this is a must read. There's so much, as Jill mentioned, the reporting on this is just killer. Stephanie Baker, financial investigation senior writer at Bloomberg News. Our thanks to her, along with Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. It's the cover story. This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So we've got a little check on tech right now because Twitter having a plan to fact check tweets. I think this is something you guys talked about on Quick Take, right? Well, you know, I got I to gotta be honest. We were trying our hardest to get Kurt on the show today. We'll and see. I think he was busy, which is okay, Kurt, because we got Kurt now. <laughs> yeah, but thank God you mentioned I it. Um, Bloomberg Tech reporter Kurt Wagner joining us on the phone. We're going to talk about Twitter. We're also going to talk about Square uh, doing a deal in the music industry. But let's start with Twitter. Fact check tweets. Tell us about this and their plan. Is it a good one? Um, Because oftentimes when you think of fact-checking, you think of the route that Facebook is taking, which is they're partnering with, you know, outside experts, right? But Twitter's idea here, it's called Birdwatch, and what they want to do is turn all of their users into pseudo-fact-checkers. And so if you're on Twitter and you come across a tweet that, uh, you know, looks like it needs more context or it needs additional information, you can actually submit a note that could be attached to that tweet and kind of, um, you know, fact check it yourself. And so they want to turn their entire user base into pseudo fact checkers. Okay, so Kurt, when I think about this, I think of Wikipedia and, and, you know, this is a place where where that actually works pretty well on on Wikipedia, but it it doesn't translate to other corners of the internet. It hasn't worked well to stop disinformation from spreading on the the platforms that, that you write about so much. What makes Twitter think it'll work on Twitter? Well, I think that they would argue that they already see people doing this. They just don't do it in this exact format, right? I mean, how often have you seen someone reply to a tweet and, and say, hey, you know, this is wrong, or hey, you you didn't mention X, or they quote tweet it, right? And they yeah. add their own commentary that way. So Twitter would say, hey, listen, people are already doing a version of this. We just haven't really, you know, built it as its own uh, kind of fact-checking product. And they think that if they do that, they can kind of take all of those uh, inputs that people are already providing but just make them easier for other people to find. So one of the challenging things about this, about fact-checking on Twitter as it as it stands now, is oftentimes the tweet with the misinformation gets retweeted and so many more times, and it gets so much more engagement than any corrected tweet or, or any sort of fact-check that is a reply. How, how does Twitter handle that? 
Well, in this instance, so uh, imagine 100 people uh, submit a note for a particular tweet, right? Twitter would use an algorithm to basically pick the one or two most helpful replies to that. And then they would actually append those notes to the original tweet. So in theory, any time that that tweet is sent around, if it's uh, retweeted, even if it's screenshotted, somehow they want those notes, Mm. you know, those replies to exist with the original tweet so that you would see them side by side. It's a little bit clunky right now because, again, it doesn't exist just yet. But at least in theory, all of the notes and the fact checks would kind of ride along with the original. You know, it's funny when... Tim said uh, Wikipedia. I thought of that too. And I also thought of um, Waze, like this whole idea of community involvement. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you're saying when there's a cop around or there's a traffic accident or, you know, like you don't have to be a part of it, but you do. You like, you kind of want to help out. Could this possibly set the stage for a model going forward for social in terms of policing itself? I think that would be the hope. Um, Mm. If this does work, I mean, why not uh, implement this on Facebook, right, or Instagram? I think that we're looking right now at a bunch of regulators in Washington who want to change the rules around speech online. And we're seeing companies try to come up with creative ways to, you know, basically appease them without necessarily changing the rules. And so I think this is one of those examples where Twitter's saying, hey, we're going to give this a shot. And if this works, maybe this is the best way to fact check or police, you know, these big platforms online and and we'll do it and we'll let, you know, the regulators decide whether or not they want to require other companies to do the same. Hey, Kurt, I want to hit on another story that you uh, filed earlier today about the music service title Square buying the company for close to $300 million in a stock and cash deal. Uh, When I tweeted this out this morning, Kurt, somebody replied to me and said, oh, I had forgotten about title that it even existed this is a, this is i think a head scratcher of a deal for a lot of people what is square going to do with title oh and i'm kind of bearing the lead here jay-z is joining square's board oops right yeah you may have heard of jay-z before yeah he's, <laughs> yeah he's going to be involved now um no i think it is a little bit of a head scratcher on the surface but i'll kind of explain how square is thinking of this right which is that they're saying listen we have built an entire business around helping entrepreneurs, small businesses, you know, build their uh, business. Well, musicians are entrepreneurs as well, and they're trying to to build a business. They're trying to sell merchandise, they're trying to sell tickets, albums, whatever it may be. And so they see this kind of as an extension of what they already do, but into a new industry. Now, the question is, did they need to buy a streaming music service in order to do that? I would say probably not. But when you really think about how much money this is, Mm. it's a very small amount of money for a company like Square. And if they can get someone like Jay-Z on their board and get someone like Jay-Z involved in kind of this uh, idea of commerce around music, you know, that might be a $300 well spent. So it's a little early to tell, Mm. um, but it is a bit of a head scratcher, but you could see, I guess, in theory, maybe where they're thinking. You don't sound convinced, just quickly. I'm a little on the fence, but, you know, I I know that uh, CEO Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z are buddies. And so part of me wonders how much of this is, uh, you know, one friend uh, buying another friend's company. But again, it's a small (laughs) amount of money for Square. So maybe it's a a, a bet worth taking. Right, right. Exactly. All right, Kurt, thank you so much. Kurt Wagner, technology reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. But it is interesting to see some of these kind of collaborations, certainly what I would consider the new tech type of companies. Also some cool pictures uh, that Square released earlier today of Jay-Z and Jack Dorsey. I want to be on that board. I'm driving in my car 
I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. We are seeing stocks certainly off their lows of the session, but uh, definitely off their highs of the session as well. Let's see what our next guest has to say. Brian Jacobson is with us, multi-asset strategist at Wells Fargo Asset Management. $603 billion in assets under management with us on the phone from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hey, Brian, good to have you here with Tim and myself on Bloomberg. Got to start with technology. How do you see the pullback in tech stocks? What does it say to you? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Sure. Uh, yeah, the pullback in technology, we actually weren't really all that surprised about uh, by the way my team has been positioning portfolios has been really more favoring the uh, what has been dubbed, you know, the reopening trade as far as, you know, people getting a little bit tired of doing their, you know, video meetings and things like that might actually want to get out and see people face to face. So does that mean point. selling tech and names, so- selling tech names or just not adding to positions? Well, the, the, our approach is to uh, not focus on individual names, but as far as like the futures contracts and the broad indexes, and one of our favorite trades has been going longer, uh, the small cap stocks, and then shorting larger cap stocks. And uh, we did take off our trade, which was long NASDAQ uh, a few weeks ago. And so it's not necessarily outright shorting it, uh, except for to the extent that the kind of positioning as far as favoring sh- uh, smaller cap stocks over larger cap stocks is reflecting a, a short bias towards some of those names. Hey, what did you make of uh, Fed Chair Powell's comments today? He said in an online event that he'd be, quote, concerned by disorderly markets, but he stopped short of offering steps to curb heightened volatility. What do you make of it? Uh, you know, I think that, like a lot of people, are just a little disappointed. Uh, hmm. I wasn't really expecting him to come out and say, "Hey, we're going to do yield curve control, or we're going to, you know, actually go out and extend the maturity of our our portfolio." But uh, you know, his uh, unwillingness to be a little bit more. Uh, I guess, forthright or uh, to commit to doing something, I think got people a little bit nervous. You know, their policy meeting is coming up on March 17th. And so uh, a lot of people are going to be kind of looking or we're looking to this as being maybe one of the last opportunities before the meeting to get some indication about whether or not they're actually going to do something about the rise in the longer term yields that we have seen. You know, there's a lot going on in the Treasury market as far as with increase in inflation expectations, people getting excited about the growth outlook so that can push up real interest rates. And then plus you also have issues going on with, say, the uh, supplemental leverage ratio that the Fed still hasn't taken action on as far as, you know, the way that banks calculate um, one of their leverage ratios that could possibly affect the treasury market as well. So there's a lot going on there. And so understandably, there's quite a bit of uh, bond market volatility. There's nothing going on, Brian Jacobson. <laughs> there's a, there is a lot going on. And, and I do think we're trying to understand, it, you know, uh, is the treasury market kind of catching up to the run up that we've seen off of the lows on the equity side of things? Is the treasury market getting ready for, yeah, it's going to be 
better in the second half of the year. It doesn't mean it's going to be a runaway market. We still have millions of people out of work. And I do wonder how much you anticipate that holding back economic growth, or it won't. And we'll just continue to see even deeper moves in that K-shaped recovery. And we'll see that reflected uh, in the financial markets. Well, you know, hopefully uh, as the economy reopens and with the Federal Reserve uh, staying very loose for a long time and focusing on uh, the, I guess, the shadow unemployment rate or whatever you might want to call it as far as, you know, the idea that a lot of people are being misclassified, so it's closer to 10% as opposed to Mm -hmm. the 6% that's being published, is that maybe that can help close the K a little bit Hmm. to make it a little bit more of a V for more people. Hey, I want to hear your thoughts on international relations right now, because you, you said that big wild cards when it comes to the market could be relations between the U.S. and China and, and the U.S. and Iran. Um, what could happen? Let's start with China. Uh, yeah, and maybe this is just because just looking at uh, what are some of the old fears, <laughs> trying to recycle some yeah. of those as well, because they really haven't gone away, right? Uh, we know that at the beginning of 2020, one of the big concerns was the relationships between U.S. and Iran, um, and just uh, under President Biden now, as far as with the uh, rocket launch in Syria, um, you know, it's like what's going to be happening next in the Middle East. It's kind of a, a, always a wild card there. And then as far as with the relationship with China, we know that President Biden, um, our expectation was that not much was going to change except for perhaps the tone and the willingness to work through more of the multinational or the, um, you know, kind of in a concerted effort with our allies on some of these incredibly important topics with China. Now, obviously, the uh, the economic numbers have been just outstanding, but uh, we do think that, uh, you know, that's always one of those things that you can worry about as far as what will that relationship look like going forward? Um, the U.S. has already shown it's willing to impose sanctions. Uh, you know, the President Biden has shown that he's willing to impose sanctions on countries that right. uh, aren't necessarily abiding by the, the rules of the road. Well, is there a trade here for you on that or concern about it? Uh well, a little bit. Uh, one of the ways in which we're positioning our portfolios is that we still do like emerging markets, but emerging markets, you know, it's a very broad area. Right. And while China, we think that can has done very well, if you think about EM Asia, uh, you know, is it EM Asia X China that is the more attractively priced area? If you think about momentum that's been favoring China, uh, but from like a, a valuation, not that valuations always matter too much, uh, but as far as, you know, the fundamentals with the earnings, there are other areas like, let's say, with uh, India, Indonesia, uh, Korea, other places within the uh, Asia Pacific region that are probably a little bit more attractively priced for us. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Listen, thank you so much, Brian. Appreciate it. Brian Jacobson, multi-asset strategist at Wells Fargo Asset Management. We did cover a lot of asset classes there. He's got about, uh, or Wells Fargo, I should say, about $603 billion in assets on the management. Brian joining us on the phone from Milwaukee. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.